Our text today is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word and our ability to come together today as the body to study. So Lord, we ask you to bless us, to bless what we're here to say, to bless what we hear today, to impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths, and that may we carry it with us everywhere we go. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. It's funny because I really did wake up on the right side of everything today, and we're going to talk about sin. <laughs> but I promise you, there's so much optimism in all of this, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. So bear with me because we are going to talk about some heavy things as it comes to sin. And it's funny for me because before I was a Christian, I could never really figure out what this whole big deal about sin was. Why did Christians spend so much time talking about sin? And if I'm being honest, I didn't really even understand the concept of sin. And that was even when I was young. I was growing up in the Episcopal Church. I served as an acolyte. I went to a bunch of Young Life camps, which had lots of fog machines. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I really had wonderful experiences there. But I didn't know the Lord, and I didn't understand sin. Then when I left the church, sin became something I made fun of Christians for, something that I would insult them for amongst my non-Christian friends. My heart was incredibly hard. And it all came down to the fact that I just really didn't understand what this whole sin thing was about. I think ultimately, if you had asked me, I probably would have told you that it was probably something created by religious people just to guilt and shame other people into right behavior. Make people feel bad. If you make them feel bad enough, they'll do the thing that your religion tells them that they should do. But this, of course, all changed for me when Jesus worked in my heart and I converted to Christianity. You see, it was the conviction of my sin before a holy God that actually brought me to my knees. That was the moment that I knew the Lord, because God had cut really deep in me. What he did was he let me see how dark my heart can really be. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand the heart? At times, it is so, so desperately sick. You see, it wasn't until I realized how far I had fallen, how much I had sinned, how real my sin was, and how I couldn't reconcile it myself, that it required God to do that for me. It was in that moment that I was humbled. It was in that moment that I knew Jesus. Because the reality is, if you don't think that you need saving from anything, then you most certainly don't think that you need a savior. If there's nothing for you to be saved from, there is really no purpose for there to be a savior. What we have to be saved from is our sin, because we are unable to overcome it ourselves. 
When God convicts us of our sin, when he cuts in our heart, what he's doing is he's making us aware of our need of his divine intervention to remove this from us because we can't do it ourselves. See, I definitely didn't understand this when I was Jewish because I was so focused on doing the right works to make sure that I did the right things that I did no concept of sin. I didn't understand this when I wasn't Jewish and I was just living in the world because, you know, you gotta just live your best life and do whatever feels good. And if most people say it's okay, then it's probably okay. But once God brought me to my knees, once I realized that I had sinned before this incredibly perfect and loving and holy God, I knew that I needed a savior. And I knew that that savior couldn't be me, that it had to be God himself. So our understanding of our sin and its relation to a holy God is critical before we can ever understand God's forgiveness. And this relationship between sin and forgiveness are critical for us because they are the foundation of our faith. If you're here today and you say, I don't really think I need saving from something. As we go through this text and as you leave, I'm going to encourage you to pray that God opens your heart and that he convicts your heart of where you've fallen short. I want you to pray that he exposes where this is where your sin is, where your shortcoming is, so that you can experience the beauty of his grace and his mercy. And that's really what we're going to talk about today, is the beauty of God's grace and his mercy as we take this journey about faith and forgiveness. So, my prayer for us as we do this is that it's a reminder of our need of our perfect Savior who laid down his life so that we could have new life, just like we, we say in the assurance of pardon, this idea, this concept, this reality of our new life in Jesus Christ, that he died for us so that we could live renewed in this world and not have to worry about the penalty of the sins of our past. So this may be, and I pray that it will be a deep reminder to all of us of the incredible grace that our faithful God provides us. And that's where we start. We pick up our text from last week. Jesus has healed the demon-possessed men. He sent them out on the Great Commission. Go tell people of the wondrous good works that the Lord has done from you. And then they get in the boat to head back. And so they, they get in the boat, and they're crossing back across the Sea of Galilee, and it starts in Matthew 9.1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. If you remember last week, we also read the verses in Mark that follow this in parallel. And the reason, we're going to do that again today. The reason is Mark provides a little bit more description of what's taking place, and it'll give us a clearer picture of what we're going to discuss. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. So you if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus had made Capernaum his home base. It was a port city. It's Peter's hometown. Uh, uh, this had kind of become the center of operations for Jesus's ministry. And it's most likely that Jesus was probably living in Peter's home when they were in Capernaum. So it makes sense because that's where he healed Jesus's mother-in-law or Peter's. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Words and their order matter. 
So this would make sense with the fact that Mark uses the word home that Jesus was home. He's, he's back in his home city, and he's probably back in the place that he was normally staying when he was in Capernaum. And you have to think about these houses in the first century. They're most likely a small two-story home. And, and the room where they're talking about this overflow taking place, where there are people lined up at the door, would have probably been on the second floor, because that's where most of the socializing would have been done. These kinds of activities, they would have held the outpost up on the second floor. That will probably make sense to you later when you think about Passover and when they were having the Passover feast upstairs. But in these homes in the first century, not only were these homes predominantly small two-story homes, but the roof was also used for relaxation, especially because there was no air conditioning and they lived in a place where it was pretty hot. So the roof would be a place where people would sleep, especially in the summer nights because it was warm. So, so the roof, many times, would be accessible by stairs, like kind of like those stairs right over there. That Jeff, maybe that's what Jeff has built for us, is a place to lower the paralytic down later. We can reenact this from the mezzanine here. But they built stairs on the outside of the house that would allow people to access the roof and where people were sleeping or resting or whatnot. So continuing in Mark, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. When they could, n- could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So here's the scene. Set the stage here. Jesus is his home. He's back in his hometown. Not his hometown, but his hometown of base of operations, and the word is spread. And great crowds have gathered again. Have you noticed this? Everywhere Jesus goes, great crowds either follow him or they gather. And the house that he's staying at, probably Peter's house, is filled to capacity. There are probably people milling in the streets, wanting to hear Jesus, wanting to get access to Jesus, but they can't. And this is the scene where these men carrying this paralytic are at. But it's important for us to think about what it must have been like to be a paralytic in the first century. Kristen used to work at Craig Hospital, which specializes in people that have spinal cord injuries and brain injuries as well. She worked with spinal cord injuries. And it is a place that spends a lot of time with people that are new and old paraplegics and quadriplegics. And before the hospital went full silliness, there used to be a time where we could go in and visit and talk to these patients and interact with them because their hospital stay is much different than like a traditional hospital stay. They're there 90 days usually at a minimum because there's so much like you were walking one day and now you're not walking. Life has literally changed overnight. So I had this incredible opportunity to interact and meet people and love on them when we could still do those kinds of things and also get a glimpse at the technology that exists for people that are paralyzed now, in the 2020s. It is truly a blessing, the amount of technology that we have that enables mobility for people. These new power power wheelchairs are incredible. Even the non-powered wheelchairs are pretty amazing. They have all-terrain, I did some Googling about wheelchairs as I was looking at this the other day, they have all-terrain lightweight wheelchairs. So you wanna do some all-terrain wheelchairing? Have you guys seen Murderball? Rugby's my jam. But murder ball is, is wheelchair rugby. This is, it's crazy. They have the, like these armored out wheelchairs and they smash into each other and flip each other over. The documentary is definitely not kid friendly, but the, 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 the activity itself is pretty crazy. Okay? So we have all of this mobility. And that obviously doesn't really pertain here. What it pertains here is that they didn't have any of this mobility in the first century. They're weren't wheelchairs. If you were paralyzed in the first century, the only way you were going to get moved around is if people carried you. 
But you see, there's more than just that, than just trying to find your friends who are going to schlep you around. Is that there was a social stigma that came with things like paralysis in the first century. You see, there was a social stigma based from the Pharisees and the Jews in the first century because they believed that these disabilities, especially people that were crippled or deformed, was a direct result of some sin in that family. Now, there's an important distinction here, and I want to make this distinction because it is really important. The reason that disease and evil and paralysis and all of those things exist in this world is because of the fall and because of sin. But people are not afflicted of things just because of particular sins. Now, sometimes you do stupid things that are sinful and they have consequences and you receive consequences for that. That's life. God gives you consequences. But you are not paralyzed. You are not diseased because your father sinned and that is your punishment for his particular sin. We are all under the fall. That is, that is the reason I wake up in the morning and I read about shootings and stabbings and horrible things that take place in Denver or anywhere else. Or, or just the absolute division and, and hatred that we see, right? We're all under that. But it's not because your dad did something and now you're paralyzed because your dad did that thing. But that's what the Jews and the Pharisees of the day believed. So if you were paralyzed, not only did you have to find people that would carry you, but you had to find people that would carry you that didn't care about the social stigma of carrying you. People looked at you and leered at you like, man, what's wrong with you? They were making assumptions about you. They were making assumptions about your sin. So you can assume that this paralytic being carried by these friends probably has felt and known all of these things, probably felt that he's paralyzed because of something that somebody in his family has done and God has punished him for it. But however, we don't know what the situation is. This man does have faith. He's seen or heard or has met people that Jesus has healed. So he's got other people in faith too. And they must have had a conversation somewhere because now they're carrying him on a bed to get him to Jesus for Jesus to heal his paralysis. That's the assumption. That's the assumption is that they're taking him so that Jesus will heal his paralysis because they have seen him heal people's disabilities, their ailments. And they bring him despite all the crowds. This is like my favorite part of the whole story. There's this grit and resilience to these men. One of the commentaries I read talked about it in the kind of the guise of obstacles. You look at miracles, and you look at Jesus, and you look at the obstacles people have to overcome. That's all of our lives, by the way, overcoming obstacles. Because obstacles in life are normal. They're expected, right? Paul is very clear about that. James is very clear about that. But see, men and women of faith, those are people that have grit. The men that are carrying this paralytic have grit. They have resolve. I probably mentioned it before. I read this book. It's called Grit. It's a good name. Angela Duxworth. Duckworth. You should add it to your list. You just keep showing up. I'm just going to keep adding books to your list. It's good. But it's really interesting, and I do recommend it. But she studies why some people have perseverance and some people don't. It came out of a... Uh, she wanted to know why people fail at a West Point. It's really what... If West Point screens and gets the strongest, smartest people, why do people fail out? So what makes the difference between the people that have the perseverance to make it through and the people that wash out? And her thesis is it's grit. 
Grit are people that persevere and don't give up. Grit are folks that get back up after they've fallen over. Grit is really what it means to be faithful because believers in King Jesus don't give up. We have grit, and that's what these men had. They had grit. They come, even though they got all these crowds, they had to know. And then you show up, and there's a whole bunch of crowds, and you're carrying a dude on a bed. They could have easily just walked down the street, looked at him and be like, hey, I don't know what the paralytic's name should be. Fred? Hey, Fred, I don't think it's going to happen this week. We'll try to come back to Jesus later. But they don't. You see, Clint Eastwood penned it well in Heartbreak Ride. He said, adapt, improvise, and overcome. And that's what these men did. You see, they were committed to, to allow their paralytic friend or this man they were carrying to see Jesus. A crowd wasn't going to stop them. It reminds me of a, of a famous saint, St. Griswold, in the parable of Wally World. See, St. Griswold wasn't going to allow something as silly as park and ride repairs to stop him and his family from experiencing Wally World. So he did what any responsible father would do. He grabbed his BB gun, and he climbed the wall of Wally World. He adapted, he improvised, and he overcame. Now, 90s movies aside... That's what these men did. They had grit. They had faith. They adapted. They improvised. They overcame. They knew that Jesus was somebody special. They believed. They had faith that they had the power to do something, to heal. And so much so that they carried this paralyzed friend, this paralyzed man on a bed. And they carried him to this two-story building, crowded with people. And what do they do? They realize they're not going to be able to get in because people are stacked up against the door, so they go up the stairs to go on the roof. We're not going home. We're going through the top. Mission Impossible style. And so they remove the part of the roof so that they can lower the bed down. It's not even about them. They don't jump in before him. They're up top lowering him down. And then what happens next? We go back to Matthew. Matthew 9, 2. And behold, some of the people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed through the ceiling. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about this, because what did he come here for? To be healed from his paralysis. And what's the first thing that Jesus says to him? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, Jesus sees the faith. He sees the faith of these men and the faith of the paralytic. He sees it with his own eyes. Why? Because they were living out their faith in actionable ways. They were doing something about it. They had grit. They had perseverance. They didn't just give up. They tore the roof open. They, they lowered him down. And then Jesus looks at this paralytic and he says, take heart. And it's an imperative. He gives it to him as a command. The Greek word is tharso. And, and it's used. It's used for take heart. But what it really means is take courage, have courage. It doesn't mean look courageous. It means have deep-seated trust, have internal courage. Grit means to be without any fear. Remember, we've, we've said this over the last few weeks. Sometimes there's these little things that we miss, but they're really big things. And then he calls him my son. This is beautiful. Because what, what he's doing and the manner in which he's speaking to him, if you read it in the Greek, is he's talking to him as his family, as he's a close friend. He's speaking to him with love and, and endearment. And he says to him, your sins are gone. They're forgiven, canceled, removed, departed from. This is so, 
I literally have goosebumps right now. This is so huge. And the reason that you can tell that it's so huge is by the reaction. Matthew 9, 3, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Luke paints a similar picture in his gospel in Luke 5, 21. He says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? You have to remember who these men are. They're not dumb. They know Torah. They know religious law. They are the ones that decide religious law. They know exactly what the Bible says about the forgiveness of sin. They would know things like Psalm 103.12. As far as the east from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He, God. Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot into the depths of the sea. He, God. Even Paul, in his letter to Timothy, understood that it was only Christ who could save him. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Only God can forgive sins. Jeremiah 31.34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Only God can forgive sins. The scribes and the Pharisees, they know this. But man, their hearts are hard. So how do they respond? How do people with hard hearts respond? I did it in an insulting way, in a pokey way. But they were furious. Why? Because, because blasphemy is a really big deal. It's still a big deal now. Blasphemy is a big deal. These are the religious leaders of the time, and they believe somebody is blaspheming God. And so they're furious. But it's because their hearts are hard. They're not convicted of their own sin. Actually, it's the opposite. They believe because of their pious and righteous works and the fact that they're the chosen people that they actually don't need saving to begin with, that they're saved by the nature of the agreement that God had made with them as his people. I've been there, especially when I was Jewish. So I would sneer and make fun of Christians and this focus on sin. My heart was hard. I was not convicted of my need of salvation. I probably would have even scoffed at the idea of grit in the manner of deep saving faith because I had evil in my heart. My heart was hard because I figured I was already part of the chosen people and I was doing the works that God had told us to do. And so that was just that. And see, this is exactly what Jesus calls out the scribes and the Pharisees for. Verse 4, Matthew 9. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? be kind of terrifying to be standing next to Jesus and he looks at you because you're having a sidebar conversation because they're probably whispering. They're mad. Why do you have evil in your hearts? Because Jesus knows their hearts. He's fully man. He's fully God. And so he tells them incredibly directly, why do you think evil in your hearts? And we're going to come back to this, this question, but I want to just segue for one verse and it's when he says this, the fact that he can see into hearts is another proof of Jesus' divinity. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's only the Lord that can know our hearts. Family, yeah, no matter what you try to hide, the Lord knows every single thing in your heart. The good, the evil, everything in between. See, this is what Jesus is calling out directly with these scribes and these Pharisees. And 
any of us who may live in unbelief or live with hard hearts at times. And he leaves no room for ambiguity. He says in verse 5, Matthew 9, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? You have to understand that Jesus is using a literary, literary device here, that he's, he's asking a rhetorical question. He's not asking a serious question. It's a serious rhetorical question. See, the scribes and the Pharisees already know about his power to heal. They've seen it with their own eyes. They're not there because they're rah, 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 team Jesus. They're trying to figure this situation out. And we know how it plays out with the Pharisees and Jesus. They have seen this with their own eyes. They have encountered men and women that Jesus has healed. So Jesus throws it right back on him. He says, do you not think that I can heal disease and not heal and forgive sin? These two things go hand in hand, just like sin and the demons that we saw last week. Jesus is making this huge statement to them right in their face. He's calling their hard hearts out. And he says, you think I can only do this one and not the other? Oh, <laughs> buckle up, buttercup. Don't you know who I am? Matthew 9, 6. I don't think anybody's ever come in that door ever during church. <laughs> you look nice. I was going to tell him you can walk through. I don't mind. Matthew 9, 6. Jesus is going to tell him who he is. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Says that to them, and then he turns, and he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. That's it. It doesn't get any more direct than that. And that's a conversation ender. You don't think I can forgive sins and heal diseases? You, rise, take up your bed, go home. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because he's doing this, he's doing this so that they will know that the Son of Man is who he says he is, that he has all of the power on heaven and on earth, that he can do the thing that only God can do, which is forgive sin, the ultimate healing from the ultimate physician. I mean, really, like, there's, you have to use your imagination when you read the Bible. You should, this, these things really happen. So put yourself there. This scene, the man is lowered. Jesus is compassionate and loving towards this man. He calls him son. And then you got these upset scribes and these Pharisees that are furious. Blasphemy is a capital crime. People got stoned it's with rocks. It's Colorado. I have to explain the difference to you all. They threw rocks at people until they died. That's a terrible way to die, by the way, is by people throwing rocks at you. But that's what they did to people who blasphemed. Blasphemy, blasphemed. So here's Jesus. He's compassionate on the paralytic, and then he turns and he deals with these religious leaders, and he's not nice, but he is kind, but he's also direct, and he's also rhetorical, and he challenges them. And after he's challenged them and put them in their place, he turns back to the paralytic and says, rise up and go home. And then verse 7, and he rose and went home. <laughs> and he did, just like that. He rose and went home. Think about the power of this scene, the power of this interaction, the faith and the commitment of these men who are still up in the roof looking down on this. We don't even know what their reaction is, but can you imagine what it would be like watching this all from above? You don't even get to pull Fred back up. Now you go down the stairs and Fred will meet you at the bottom because he can walk too. Jesus isn't nice, but he is kind. He is direct. And he's direct about the hardness of their hearts. He's direct about his position and his authority. 
He's forgiven this man, he's healed him, and he sent him home. And now look at how the crowd reacted, how different it was in the hard hearts of the Pharisees. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given, them, who had given such authority to men. That's verse 8. First of all, they were afraid. Mark uses the word amazed. Both of the Greek words in Matthew and Mark, they both kind of respectively mean the same underlying principle, deep awe. Because in deep awe, deep awe, there's fear. And there's also reverence and amazement. We fear because this is God. If you were presented face to face with the living God as they were in that moment, you should feel fear. You imagine if you had Jesus three feet in front of your face. Imagine being right there. Because you have to think about this. All of this took place with real witnesses and real people, and they were afraid. And I'm sure I would be afraid too if I had witnessed this. But it's bigger. It's awe. It's reverence. Because remember, these, it's probably Jews in this crowd. Matthew is Jewish. He's predominantly writing a gospel that is going to be read by Jewish people. These are people who believe in God. They know that God has the power to do these things. It is one thing to think about God's power, and it's another thing to see God's power to experience it, to touch it, to feel it. It must have been overwhelming. I, I don't know how it couldn't be. Because I felt this before in my life on a different scale. Uh, experiencing God's creation, experiencing God's miracles. God's hand and the sudden revelation of just how small all of us are comparatively. It's awe, it's reverence, it's respect. It's deep respect, it's loving respect. So what did they do with this fear? Did they run off? Ah, run away, run away. No, they glorified God. They were afraid, and then they glorified God. They humbled them. I mean, how could you not? It's like that the healed demon-possessed man. He's like, I want to get in the boat with you. She's like, no, no, you got to go tell some people about this. He's like, no, no, really, I want to go with you. This is incredible. And he's like, no, really, you need to tell other people about how incredible this is. They went out, and they glorified God. There's just so much here that applies to our life today. First is faith. We are to be faithful people. We are to be people with grit. We are to adapt. We are to improvise. We are to overcome. It's important today, especially when we live in a time where it's the church's responsibility to help rebuild society and culture. And it will take grit. It will take pushing through big crowds. Some of you may even need to pry off a roof here and there. Because being a Christian requires work. You got to get your hands dirty. You got to scrape your knees. You have to fall down. You're going to fall down a lot going to have to get back up. That requires grit. There was, a, there was a time and a place when the church was known as a place that had grit. The Spanish might call it cojones. There was a time when that was, that was the backbone of the church, when pastors weren't afraid of cultural pressures and they stood firm on the truth, whether it was, po whether it was in, in popularity or not. As good news is I was never popular, so I'm not worried about trying to be popular. <laughs> But standing firm and being kind while we do it requires grit because it requires perseverance. Sometimes it requires pushing against the crowd. And sometimes we don't even get to see the fruits of our work in this lifetime. But we build and we work because we serve God. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. When the Bible uses the word thousand, it's usually meaning really long periods of time. The point is, 
when we work for Christendom today, it isn't just so that, God willing, we all get to see the fruits of our labors. But we're doing it for them, and we're doing it for their kids, we're doing it for their kids' kids, and their kids' kids' kids, and their kids' 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 kids, because it matters. What we do matters. How we repair and rebuild the world matters. But how do we get grit in the first place? Because you can have grit about the wrong stuff. We get it from faith. We have perseverance because we're faithful people. But why do we have faith? This is where we tie it right back to the beginning. Because we're convicted of our sin. You see, once God convicts us of our sin, then only then can we respond back with saving faith. Because if you don't know that you need to be saved, what use is a savior? It sounds odd, but if you aren't really convicted of your sin, like I said at the beginning, I want you to pray to be convicted of it. And this sounds weird because that sounds like you can have all this negativity you have to deal with, which you will. We live in a time where people are focused on making their lives as comfortable as possible, but that doesn't mean they're as rich as possible. Just feeling good isn't enough. If you are stuck in yourself and only trying to live a life of relaxation and being all about yourself, you're never going to really grow, you're never going to serve, and you're not going to be in faith, and you're definitely not going to be convicted of your sin. So you pray to God and you ask Him to show your sin and it will hurt. But really, that's the whole point. Because once you've realized how far you've fallen, you realize how you can't do it by yourself, then and only then you get, get to understand the beauty of God's grace, of His healing hand. Not only can he heal our diseases, not only can he drive out our demons, but he cleanses us of our sin. He says there's no more shame, there's no more guilt, you are mine, and that changes us. That is what gives us grit, because we're these adopted children of God. We're secure in our standing before him, and once you're secure in your standing for him, then you can get down to real work. You can get down to the brass tacks of things. Go love your neighbors, love your enemies, build his kingdom, push through crowds, remove the roof. And stay faithful while doing it. That must have been a big pivot point for the paralytic. Realizing that healing sin and healing disease and healing all go hand in hand. That the ultimate healing we need is from our sin. But God can do other miracles as well. But at the end of the day, only God can do it. So as we wrap up, what I want you to think about is I want you to think about the reactions of those who were faithful in this story and those who had hard hearts. Because those with hard hearts wanted to condemn. This man's blaspheming. They wanted to proclaim their own justice. They had fury. He blasphemes. They're angry. But how do the faithful respond? They respond in awe and fear and amazement. It only deepens their faith. They go out, they glorify God. They acknowledge who God is, who is in control, who is due the honor and the glory. And shouldn't we all pray to be a lot more like that? People convicted of our sin, committed to mortifying it before the Lord. See, this is actually the paradox. God works in all these crazy paradoxes, right? The beautiful paradox of being convicted of your sin isn't that it's condemning or soul-crushing, is that it's actually life-giving. When you are convicted of your sin, that is the only way that you can come into new life. That's the paradox of faith. 
The thing that drives you to death actually gives you new life through the blood of Christ. That's what we should be thinking about as we prepare our hearts for Easter. This is amazing. But here's the other beautiful thing. It just keeps getting better. Because once you know what it is, and you know that you're saved from it, and you don't have guilt and shame from it anymore, what happens is your heart turns from you and you say, I don't want to do that anymore. It's not that you won't sin, but you know the difference. And then you repent. You're accountable. See, none of this is the promise of perfection. That's what the Pharisees thought that they had. We've all seen how that works out. But what it is is a, a path of promised growth. It's the adapt, improvise, and overcome path. It's accountability. It's grit. That is the confession of sin. That is the assurance of pardon. We should be praying to be faithful and convicted of our sin so that we can destroy it. There's this old Puritan named John Owen. He wrote a very famous book in 1656 called The Mortification of Sin. It's really good. You should read that too. But he says that we must kill our sin or it'll be killing us. Owen was right. But the only way that we can do that is by being focused on the redemptive work of Christ. Just like the paralytic man knew he couldn't save himself. Just like the paralytic man could not save himself, we cannot either. We have to be convicted of these things and we have to have the faith to know that there is somebody that can solve them. And, and, and then we should be in awe and amazement and, and reverence at the saving work that our God has done. That he took flesh. That he died for us. So we think about as we prepare for Easter. We don't spend this whole time in browbeating lament. Instead, we reflect joyfully on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the death of his sins. That should motivate us to glorify God and to be optimists, to tell the world of the mighty deeds he has done for us, of his incredible miracles. See, God moved in my heart. He showed me what my sin was, and I am so incredibly grateful because now I know his incredible mercy. That's what motivated us to follow the call to start the church. So it's motivating us to jump into these new endeavors. Endeavors that I do believe will allow us all to continue to build God's kingdom here. I want to end this on an optimistic note, and then we're going to sing. Sometimes you may encounter Christians who walk around miserable in their sin. This is why you should look at the world like a child. Well, she's great. She's fine. I mean, she's making everybody smile, the part of optimism in the sermon. Like, this is, this is the best thing you could ever have. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. We're optimists, friends. You can see Christians walking around mopey because people have talked about their sin their whole lives. You need to kill your sin. I agree. It's a big problem. And we all have sin problems. But God saved you from your sin. That's the most glorious news in the whole world. You are not condemned. You are not going to hell if you are in faith in Jesus Christ, that you have renewed life with him, new life with him, which means there is no shame and there is no guilt for the things that happened to you before because they're done and they're over and they're forgiven. They're done. They're over. They're forgiven. And so you can go about life like this, happy, joyful, looking at the world with, with incredible eyes. It's going to be 60 degrees today. The birds are singing. It is gorgeous. You're all to go home after this and have your favorite cocktail on your back deck looking and based in the sun, the glory of this beauty that God has given you. We are optimists. We can change the world because we are saved from our sin. We are not mopey people. We have hope. We have hope in a world that is full of evil and, and crazy stuff. 
I heard yesterday that there's a man in our legislature that wears a dress. Some people we know were fighting a bill in the legislature last Friday, and he said it's hard to discuss biology with a man who doesn't believe it while he wears a dress. How do you have hope and joy? Well, the way you do <laughs> is that you know that God is good. And so that's it. God is good. His mercy is incredible. We should be joyful people in faith. We should be doing what Paul tells us, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice, because Christ has saved us from the penalty of our sin. He has forgiven us. And so let's go out and make this world a better place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so incredibly grateful for you sending us Jesus, for his death on the cross for the removal of the penalty of our sins so that we can be joyous Christians building your kingdom, not for us, but for you. So Lord, strengthen us in this work. May we have the resolve and the grit of the men who carried the paralytic up the stairs and of the paralytic himself, having full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We pray all this, Lord, in your mighty and amazing name. Amen.